Hello everyone, my name is Cliff Duvinois, and after 20 years I returned to my native Michigan and in my quest to reconnect with our great state, I want to talk to the leaders that are behind Michigan's top destinations. I'm going to learn more about them and the great experiences they and their team provide all of us Michiganders, and perhaps I'll learn a few things along the way. Welcome to the Call of Leadership podcast. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Cliff Duvenois, and today I am joined by a truly remarkable uh, human being. Drafted in 1980, he played for the Detroit Lions as their quarterback for 10 years. This included two playoff bids and a divisional championship. In 1981, he actually earned the Detroit Lions MVP award. After his 10-year career, you could say that he could have just sat back and just relaxed, but he didn't. He dedicated the next phase of his life after he went through a very real personal loss, which we'll be discussing today. His work in depressive illness and mental fitness has earned him an honorary doctorate from his alma mater of Utah State University. He's also received the University of Michigan's prestigious Neubacher Award for his work with the stigma associated with disabilities. He's won the 2010 Detroit Lions Courage House Award, the prestigious 2008 Lifesaver Achievement Award from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. I could probably stand here and read his resume all day, but we should probably jump into the show. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show, Eric Hippel. Eric, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. And uh, thanks for having me on, I appreciate it. Sure. Let's let's talk a little bit about about where you're from. Well, you know what? Before we do that, I got to ask you, what's going on with the Detroit Lions? Man, isn't that the golden question? I, you know, <laughs> I don't know. And then, and I was there for ten years, and and uh, I thought you'd think I'd be able to answer that question. But watching, you know, as a fan, you know, for the last you know umpteen years, it's really it's really frustrating. And I, I wish I had an answer for it. And it doesn't seem like to be any easy fix. I would, I would, a lot of people go back to a curse that was put on by Bobby Lane, <laughs> but that's been over with since then, supposedly. So I don't know. It's just a very strange, very strange circus, I guess, that, that keep, continues to go on. I don't know. I don't know. I don't get it. That's okay. I, I just, you know, I was just kind of looking forward to that first game of the season and got up there and. <laughs> Well, yeah, there you go. So you, you um, and me, you and me both, you know. But I, I tell you, so going into we we're ahead and in, in the fourth quarter, but I didn't, I didn't settle in because I remember what happened last year seven times, and sure enough, it bit us. And then, and then last week was 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 really tough to watch as well. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Love it. Why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up? I, I actually I was born in Texas, but I grew up in uh, Southern California, uh, a place called Downey. Started playing Pop Warner football around probably eight or nine years old. And then I went to a small 3A high school that was kind of, it's just outside the, it's like a suburb of LA. And then fortunately enough, I, I became, I was kind of a late developer type kid. So I didn't, wasn't really a star or anything else until I guess I caught up to my body in my junior year in, in high school. And then the scrappiness of my, of, of my attitude, I guess, took over and we had kind of a running type offense and. And then I took a lot of hits, but got back up again. And I think Utah State, my one and only scholarship offer, <laughs> said, hey, that's our guy. So I went to Utah State University and ended up becoming a four-year starter. And and then I got drafted by the Detroit Lions. Excellent. What did you study when you were at uh, Utah State University? Well, at, oddly enough, I actually went in as an art major. I love art, and I was pretty decent at it in high school. And when I was younger, won a couple of awards. And so I went in as an art major. The 
thing I thought I would focus in on, of course, was was commercial art because that's how you make money. But it was completely different than the type of art that I like to do, which is just was painting and free flow stuff. And and so I switched over to business. And so I studied in business administration, end up also studying computer science. And so I was a long time ago. So computer science doesn't mean anything, you know, from back then to what it is today. But oh, yeah. graduating with business administration with a computer science option, basically. So it's almost close to kind of a dual degree. But, but anyway, so that's what I ended up graduating with was in business administration. Excellent. And so I got to ask the question uh, because, you know, we, we see these we see these stories on TV. Uh, and I got just got to ask the question, what was it like to be part of, you know, the NFL draft and being tapped by the Detroit Lions? You know, major league or not major league. I'm sorry, but you know, it, it's you know, just just a national level team for the NFL. What was that like? Well, I can tell you, it's a lot different then than it is today. Today is such a, 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 a you know event, really. I mean, and so it's it wasn't like that then. They had the draft, but I was sitting basically in the trailer that I lived in, <laughs> so it's on campus, and I'm waiting for it, but. I'd also had some difficulty. My senior year, I'd had injured a shoulder and then came back. And so to kind of prove my worth, I played in a, in a postseason bowl game. It's actually the blue-gray game, which is kind of funny now to think about that. But, you know, in today's culture, you know, the blue, you know, the north against the south, you know, blue-gray game is what they call it. Right. And, and so I ended up blowing my knee out. And so I injured it. That means I went in for surgery. And so now I'm up for the draft, and it knocked me down a few. I actually have my draft, my scouting report going into before the draft, and it, it had me listed as a first-round draft choice. And so with this, I went to about three or four different teams. They flew me around to look at for a physical, and I still had fluid on my knee from the from the surgery. And so two teams flunked, flunked me in the physical. And so I guess you can say Detroit took a risk on me. And so I went draft day, I was sitting around not knowing what was going to happen, you know, not, you know, knowing that I'd flown around to all these different teams in the combine, but what, what is that, what's going to happen? And I got a phone call from, is at the end of the third round, I got a phone call from the head coach for Detroit and he said, he's going to take us, take me in the next round. So I'd be the first pick in the fourth round. And I was ecstatic you know, oh, good, I'm going to get my chance, you know, and and so they did, they, they drafted me, and I remember going, all right, I saw super excited and everything else, but I'm a West Coast guy, and I thought, what's what's in Detroit? <laughs> this is a natural thing, because I, I, I got drafted, okay, this is really cool, but, you know, what is Detroit? You know, I was eyeballing, you know, Seattle, you know, because they were pretty pretty new team, West Coast, and, you know, looking at that, you know, if I went somewhere, wouldn't that be cool? But it was Detroit, and so... I was excited, but also kind of apprehensive because I've never been back this way. And you get you get drafted into Detroit. They you know they put you into the the quarterback slot. And you know even though even though it is Detroit, and even though it may not have been your first pick, you 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 had a really great career there. And not only that, but you stayed with them throughout your career. What was it that that kept you playing for Detroit that whole time? I was the owners. <laughs> so I'll say it like this. So, so when I came, when I came here, like I said, I knew nothing about Detroit. I did 
realize how beautiful Michigan can be when I remember they picked us up. And, and by the way, it's completely different. I mean, we were more like recruits than we were actually, you know, draft choices that you're going to make a lot of money and come in. You know, it was like, OK, we own you now. <laughs> it was a different experience <laughs> than it is today. But the well, we got here. And so what I found out was I think it was Joe Reed was the third team quarterback at the time. And he retired when when they drafted me. So that means I was number three on the quarterback list, and they keep three quarterbacks. And so I knew pretty much I was going to make the team, right, unless I really screwed up bad. And so the experience is coming in and just trying to learn. And I was, I was a holder. And so Eddie Murray, myself, and another draft choice, Tom Schnur was his name, we, we made up the three for the rookie you know, field goal team and, and, and PAT. And so that was cool. So that means I'm going to also get on the field, you know, so that was neat. But the experience of coming into training camp with this, you know, from coming from Utah State, from coming from a background of a small 3A school, from one of those mindsets of, you know, am I worthy, you know, type thing, which is kind of a weird mindset to have because I felt good. I was in great shape, but still, you know, all of a sudden you're in it and you're looking at all these guys and man, kind of that imposter setting kind of fits in do i belong to be here and you know and i stayed that way basically until i got my chance to start my first start that's yeah that i can i can certainly certainly see that you know because you're 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 playing with like the top players in the world right i mean you know you're you're out there playing against the best of the best i mean what what you had there is like you know the you know one in a hundred million shot you know and it's not just playing on a team it's that you know like you said you're you know you're you're the you're the 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 third quarterback you are i mean wow you're there so i i think that's you know i i think that would be pretty intimidating for especially for anybody to come up there so like you said you fell in love with you fell in love with michigan i guess and you stayed here for 10 years i tell you what was amazing was the the changes in speed oh my gosh because you go from high school and then you make the jump into college and it's just like wow you know, this is fast, you know what I mean? So just trying to, you know, keep pace and keep speed, but then you get used to that speed, right? And it becomes kind of normalized. And then you take that speed and jump into uh, the pros and it is like multiplier effect. It is like, it is insane how fast things happen. And there is no time to think at all, any hesitation and you're done. And so it becomes, you have to acclimate to that speed of things are happening and not let it get you, you know, and not panic and not, <laughs> yeah. it, it's actually like a train wreck. I mean, excuse me, like a car cra- crash. It just happens so fast. Like, wow, the play's over. <laughs> what just happened? You know, until you acclimate to that over time and get to know things and that becomes more of a, an, uh, uh, you know, more of your subconscious operating. And so then you can kind of sit on top of that and say, okay, now I can manage this game. And it, it, it's, it, it is, it is quite uh, insane how fast things happen in the NFL. Oh, I bet. I bet. I bet. So the question I've got question for you I've now for you is now. your your career with the Lions, you were with them for 10 years. And after your, your 10 years is over, at, at that point, you know, you're you're looking at basically just retirement. But it's not really retirement because you literally launched into this uh, next phase of your life. And, and I, I do want to spend some time and, and make sure we, we discuss this at length. But, you know, when you're when you're basically playing at, you know, the world level, the top world level, and then you go into retirement and what was, you know, talk to me, you said this, you said before I hit the record button, you said this beautiful word transition. I love that word. Oh. You you went through this transition and what, what was it like to kind of like, 
you know, be at the be at, basically at the top of your game now having to to step down into this next phase of your life. Well, you know, towards the, towards the end, and, and uh, you know, the last couple of years of, you know, I was uh, beat up pretty bad, and I had broken my thumb, and so I uh, was on injury reserve one season and came back, got my starting job back in 88, and uh, broke an ankle, fractured it, and just it spun it on backwards, and so plate, screws, I mean, it was a major deal, and came back after that year, about midseason, got my starting job back against Minnesota, and uh, in that game, they just, you know, they told me a the pieces on on the blitz. I just couldn't move, you know. I couldn't escape, you know. I just wasn't as fast as I used to be, and it just I was just getting hammered. And so the they pulled me in the third quarter, and then the I went in the next day, you know. They benched me in the third quarter. I went in the next day, and I and I knew something was up, you know. And so I went in, and and they called me into the office, and they actually said that well, we've got a couple options here. You can retire, okay, and uh, we'll give you a <laughs> we'll give you a, a platform you know, a press conference, but we are going to cut you. <laughs> so right. I said, okay, so you can cut me, which means that's pretty ugly. And I won't get a chance to say goodbye to people. So I chose the retirement route so I could have the press conference and, and say goodbye to a city, basically not goodbye, but my, as my career was ending a city. But when I went home after that, that, that day, after the press conference and I said home, I was in shock. It was just like, wow, you know, I've been doing this since I was nine years old. And I'm 32 years old, and I have no idea who I am. You know, I wore a uniform every year. I was known as football. That's my identity. And so you lose that identity, your support systems. You lose, um, you know, your medical care. Your, I, I'll throw, you can throw fame in there. You, you lose all that in just a snap of a finger, and it's over with. And trying to come to grips on, on who you are is probably the biggest thing. And so when I say transitions, and everybody goes through transitions, and I'm really big on, on helping to identify what that really means because – you know, going from, oh, well, you got cut one day and also you just go in and start a job the next day or you, it is so much more than that, that it's hard to describe what it is. But it's the same thing for somebody who's been in their career, who's been, a, 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 you know, a, a worker for, you know, 30 years or somebody who's been a, a business owner for 30 years that or, you know, think of teachers, think of, you know, anybody that's been doing what they've been doing for a long period of time. Their identity is that and it's removed from them. Is very very difficult, and I think that transition is not really looked at enough. You take kids who go from one class, you know, one grade to another grade. You take, you know, seniors that graduate and now they're going to go to college, or not go to college, maybe they go get a job. Those transitions are huge, and you take athletes when they're not when they can't perform anymore. That you take military service members when all of a sudden they leave the service because they're either forced to because of injury or because of or because they time out, or just because they do cutbacks in the military. The same thing, wore a uniform and they're out. Those things are really big, and part of that is the more identity you have in your in your workplace, or more identity you have as far as attaching yourself to that, it becomes very difficult. And I look at you know families who go through you know divorce changes, and and kids who have to move from one parent to another parent, or one location to another location. They're going through transitions every time they go through something. And I think that's what, to put a spotlight on that, I think is a very big deal. And that's what I've been really trying to, to focus in on and trying to help people with. Your journey down this path actually began, began with a very personal loss to you. Why don't you share with us a little bit about what that is? Well, yes. And the, you know, I was struggling with uh, the transition as we talked about when I got cut, but I started, I started a, a business and kind of poured everything I had into it 
just to kind of find a new identity. The thing is, after a few years, you know, the struggle, you know, continued where, you know, I felt like I just didn't belong kind of like in the, and there was just no joy, you know. So I had like every classical symptom of depression going on at the time. And it kind of culminated to where I ended up just in the, not, I was getting ready to leave on a business trip and I just, just, it didn't fit right. And just, I thought people would be better off without me. And I, and I jumped out of a car that was going 75 miles an hour. My wife was driving it. And I ended up waking up in the hospital. They already done some surgery. They wanted me to get some help with the psychiatrist and figure out what was going on. And I said, no, you know, that's what stigma does. And I just, nope, not going to do that. I'm fine now. And kind of grinned and bear it and, and move forward. The trouble with that is, is not learning anything. Right. And, and so that made me not very, very uh, uh, astute to where my son, who was 15 years old, that was actually living with his mom in Utah, then living with me, then living back with her. And I've been remarried. And so he fit into our family really well. And he came back and lived with us his freshman year going into high school and just did super, just did great. I mean, he was really popular, really well known, captain of his freshman basketball team, just a, just a good kid. And then, but around the holidays, for reasons, you know, maybe it's just another transition is coming because he's going to go back and, I don't know, but he started not doing well and it culminated into at some point in time. And I didn't pick him up and I didn't pick these things up just because I was kind of involved myself in my own stuff. And, uh, and unfortunately, he ended up taking his life. So he died by suicide aside at age 15, April uh, 9th, 2000. And that part after that was just crumbling. It, it just, it took everything, uh, the guilt, the shame, the, you know, the loss was just so overwhelming that I went down a pathway of destruction of just, you know, alcohol, anything I get my hands on, basically prescription medications, really anything I get my hands on just to be numb. I didn't want to feel anything. And it was in the recovery of, of that, that I ended up working for the university of Michigan depression center and thanks to a, a great man, Dr. John Graydon, who got me involved over there. But it was through that learning, that education and stuff that kind of started me in this pathway of being able to understand what those transitions can do, but understand what loss is like, but also understanding that, you know, picking yourself back up again and, and trying to move forward. And, and that's really what set me on this mission. And, uh, you know, I do have to, to, to say real quick, you know, I really am sorry for really, I'm sorry for your loss. And I would like to go back and just revisit something here really quick, because mm -hmm. I have, I've heard this a couple of times from people that have been interviewed that have seriously considered even extensively planned out their suicide, but they, they seem to have this feeling that the, and you use this phrase, the world would be better off without me. Why, 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 why did, why did that thought run through your mind? Well, you know, there's, and I, I, I can't say scientifically that the answer is because, you know, you take a lot of things on empathetically. Sensitive people seem to be, have more empathy towards other people's feelings as well. And so I, I think what happens is you get to the point where you don't want to be a bother anymore. You know, okay, they, they put up with this, you know, over and over again. I'm just down. I'm not able to perform. I'm not able to, you know, be there and present for people. So, you know, the, if you go by what the, the, the model that was put on by Thomas Joyner, Dr. Thomas Joyner, which says, you know, there's burdensomeness feeling, you know, words, you feel like you're a burden to the society or a burden to those around you, the ones that you love because of what you're going through. And so that means 
you don't ask for help, really. You just decide that if I'm not around, they're going to be better off. And so it's, it becomes these suicidal thoughts and how it's actually thoughts of death turn into suicidal thoughts on how, you know, you would remove yourself from it. But it's, I don't want to say you sacrifice, but it's almost to the point where it, it, it hurts to live and, it, and I'm hurting people and I don't want that to happen. And that was a change with after my son died. And, you know, he was a sensitive kid as well, you know, and I, and I talked about, you know, it's kind of artsy background, you know, when I was in high school and he was kind of the same way. And, uh, but one of the, shoot, I kind of lost my track there for a second on a, on a side, on a side thought, but the, that, that, that burnsome feeling, like I said, is what really carries, carries forward. But what I learned about after Jeff's death was that you're not better off. Okay, and the people that you leave behind are not better off. They are far much worse because they carry your pain, they carry the guilt, the shame, the the hurt, the loss. You just shift it to them. And so, when somebody's thinking that way, you've got to really let them know: no, this is not true. This is just part of your thinking. But you're going to really, really hurt people, you know, and cause them pain. And that's the opposite of what you want to do. And so, that's an important piece. Thanks for bringing that up. It is, and uh, and I'm I'm glad you said that because just this last week I was listening to a a podcast interview where the the host of the show opened up about how he was molested as a child, and he was planning his suicide, and uh, it was just you know a God thing, whatever that it didn't happen. But what he said would really struck me, and the fact that it never occurred to him that by thinking of you know, committing suicide and doing that act just to like relieve his pain. He never considered the fact of the pain that he was going to inflict on all of his loved ones would be like tenfold what he was feeling. Yes. So yeah, yeah. I, I think that's something a lot of people don't think about, but with, you know, with this touching you in a very real way, I mean, it, it touched you, you know, personally, just you, you and your heart with, with you and your son, you have dedicated a good chunk of your life to, you know, you've written a book, you've given tons of speeches, you've, you've done so much work. I mean, like I mentioned in the intro there, you've got an honorary doctorate from your alma mater. So why don't you talk to us about the, the work that you are actually doing in this area? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thank you. And it and it's and it's changed in uh, over time as well because you know early on there was you know, stigma was so bad. Let's try to defeat stigma first, right? So let's go out and tell stories and talk and say, hey, listen, these things they are treatable first of all, and so let's identify what they are. So depression is you know about ninety percent of suicides, and I'm, I'll just stick for that for a second, or due to some sort of untreated or undiagnosed you know mental health issue, and, and depression is a huge part of that. About one in four, one in five to one in four people will suffer from some sort of mental health issue in their lifetime. And so if it's not you, you know, it might be somebody in your family or somebody, a friend or somebody that you do know. And so let's just talk about this. And so let's raise the awareness. And well, that started happening. And the awareness has gotten to a level that we're there and talking about it. But so that means that if that's the case, then let's go ahead and, and talk about treatment because that would make sense. If you can identify it, then let's get treatment. And it's taken a long time, you know, to get mental health parity, you know, done for, you know, to, to go and see a, a psychiatrist or a psychologist or somebody is, is, is paid just like it would be if it's a physical health issue. And so there's that track, you know, so working to try and, and change that and getting guys to come forward or working with hard to reach populations and, and bringing the fact that you can get health care to them and, and, and or mental health care, behavioral health care to them. So, you know, there there is that piece. And um, so I spend a lot of time on hard to reach populations. We started a thing called After the Impact 
So reaching out to military veterans and, and former NFL players, I think they have a lot in common with, with identity for a uniform. And then when they leave, their whole support systems are gone. So we started doing that. But on the same track, it was, okay, so there's not enough therapists and there's not enough psychiatrists around. And it's almost impossible to get them. So if you raise the awareness and people start identifying, but you don't have the answer because you, there's just not enough of them, we need to increase that. Well, in the meantime, that's a huge gap. And so you start talking on conversations and get people talking, and that's great. But if everybody's just talking about their woes and like, yeah, this is happening to me, but I don't know what to do about it because there's nobody that can't get it three months before I can get an appointment, you end up with a lot of unhealthy people talking about stuff. And it can be, it, it, it can, exam, it can uh, be a multiplying effect in the negative terms. And so let's start educating people us common people, right? I guess everyday Joes on more about what mental health or mental fitness is. And so we at least have an identity of what it should be, you know, and quit identifying it by a diagnosis. Let's talk about what mental health should be. And that means, you know, the definition I love is, you know, a state of well-being on who you are and, and the fact that you can, you know, have normal you can handle normal stresses, you can be productive, you can be part of a community, you can have good relationships. You know, let's, let's talk that state of well-being is what I'm really after to try and get people to understand. Because feeling uncomfortable in your skin, um, afraid to associate with other people, the anxieties and the worries can lead to depression and negative thought patterns and core beliefs that, that might not be true. And so let's try and elevate the everyday education. And so, and so the, one of the biggest things today it's working on how to educate, you know, the everyday person with some emotional intelligence, you know, understand that we do have emotions and what do I do with those emotions, you know, requires, you know, some thought processes on how to redirect, how to rethink, how to re, re what do you call it, uh, how to look at it in a different way. So perception wise, reframe things. And so one of the programs I'm involved with that I really like, it's, it's called Be Nice. It's actually by the Mental Health Foundation of Western Michigan. But be nice.org. And so be nice is notice, invite, challenge, and empower. And it's just a way of raising a little bit of level of, of cultural experience for, for middle school and high school students. And uh, so it's a student run uh, format. So I love that. Just like I love the idea that if you can't see a therapist today, is there somebody that at least has been taught some sort of triage and just listen to things and say, hey, listen, here's a voice to have. And, and we can actually do that for our friends and ourselves if we're in tune, a little bit more mentally healthy. And so I'm just trying to raise the, the level of mental health and understanding it a little bit better. That's where I'm at kind of today. There are other caveats that go along with that, of course, which is some of the physical things that happen. Yes, there are predispositions. There is trauma, which is a huge thing. In fact, uh, trauma that happens in youth, you know, the adverse, you know, childhood, childhood experiences can actually form our, our core beliefs and how we're going to respond and how we react to things and how we you know, for our behavior health in the future. And so um, trying to get an end to trauma, understanding that piece as well. And then, of course, there's brain injury as well, which, you know, we're, everybody's thrown into it in 2009, yes. 2010, because of uh, the NFL came out and, you know, and said, yes, okay, concussions can have <laughs> some some long-term problems to it. It was really interesting. I'm, I'm, I know I'm rambling, I apologize, but it was really interesting because around that time, Trying to get players, you know, to identify with some of the mental health issues they have from transition was really difficult to do. But when the head injury thing came out, everybody came flooding in saying, yeah, I have these symptoms. And they're the same symptoms that you have from transition or mental health issues. <laughs> so it was wow. like, OK, well, 
at least they're coming forward, right? And then trying to decipher out between, you know, is it real actual brain injury or is it actually mental health issues that you're having? And so, which can be complicated, but at least we're on track. We're bringing mental health into the, into the fold. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people take mental health really into account when you're speaking about transitions, because, you know, I know we were just talking about the, you know, these football players and, and after their career is over and, you know, the, the concussions that they sustain long-term, you mentioned something before, subject near and dear to my heart is military personnel, you know, transitioning from being in the military to being into civilian life. So, you know, with that being said, if there's taking a look at your, your, your experience in this area, the people that you've talked with, the people that have you, that have helped for somebody out there, that's like, perhaps like, let's say that they're, that they're experiencing a transition or they're getting ready to experience one of these transitions. What would be, what would be like, maybe like three keys of pieces of advice uh, that you would give? And I know I'm kind of putting you on a spot here. No, not at all. No. What would, uh, what would be like three key things that you would tell them to, you know, look out for or to focus on or whatever, whatever form that advice might take? Well, well, first of all, understanding that this is a big event and I'm not going to, I'm not going to tie it to PTSD, but I, I do want to tie it to the fact that it's some sort of trauma that you're experiencing because you, it's got a huge amount of loss involved in it. The loss of identity, the loss of a support system, the loss of like mission that's gone and so loss of purpose, those are really huge losses. And it's also maybe a loss of a future if you plan on having a career, but now you can't go forward in that career. Those are some huge losses. And so when you start thinking about loss, there's things that are going to be some sort of grief involved. But if you don't understand that, then all of a sudden when you start feeling the grief from it, like in, you know, like we do if we've lost somebody um, to death, that, that grief, that missing, it can set off these symptoms that we're talking about and make it difficult. Just as somebody who's gone through a really a traumatic event, right, that might have been shocking to them, they might have witnessed something, yes, that's there, but you also understand it's going to have some complications, some symptoms that will follow it. And if you understand that, that, that is, those symptoms are going to be normal for the event that you just went through, then at least you can look at them and say, aha, so you can ex- at least have some sort of expectation of what's going to happen, but know that that's normal and that you're going to get through it. It's when we don't realize it that we start going through those things that we start thinking, oh, this is abnormal, and that means something's wrong with me. And then we start chasing the, you know, the, the diagnosis and start, you know, I, I don't want to say disease building, but basically you start looking for reasons why something's wrong because you have to have some sort of reason why that happened and not realizing it was just this transitional piece. And so the, re, the road to recovery or just like in and the, the road to acceptance, the road to, you know, norm, normalizing it again realize you're going to have to go through some of these symptoms, you know, sleep problems, you know, not kind of feeling out of sorts, kind of feeling down, maybe kind of feeling, you know, lost for a while. And, and it is something that's traumatic that happens. Then it's also not wanting to think about it. And so trying to avoid that. And how do we avoid things with alcohol, with, with isolation, with acting out, you know? And so, we don't want to get in that, in that pattern. And so it's just identifying it, first of all. That's the main thing. So realize those things are going to happen, some of those feelings have. And that way it makes it a little bit easier to say, okay, this is what they talked about. I'm in it now. And so you know there's going to be an, an outcome that's a really positive one if you just maintain and understand what's going through and follow it. Sure. Yeah. Attitude is everything. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 it's more than even attitude. It's, it's awareness to what, what the body goes through when you go through a major transition. 
and just identifying that. The second part is if you are stuck in it, right, then it is to talk with somebody and it could be a trusted person, somebody you trust, somebody that's on your inside circle, somebody that might be a peer that have gone through it before. And so realizing, okay, there's a story there. They seem to be okay. What did you go through when you went like this? Rather than think you're the only one going through it, because that's much the same thought process. I'm the only one going through this. And so and so identification and reaching out to peers. But then again, it's also understanding where emotion, and I'll call this, you know, the, the emotional intelligent piece, which is, we have, you know, you know, our five basic emotions, you know, disgust, sad, you know, joy, you know, anger, disgust, you know, that we have. But what does that mean and how how does that shape my behavior and what I do about it? If we understand the emotion and where it's coming from, then we actually can reframe it and think about it and say, I understand where it's coming from. It's when we don't that we act out and then our behaviors become following that emotion rather than, you know, the idea of like, I understand what I'm involved in here. This is a transition. This is going to be rough, but I will get through it. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you for that. If, if anybody in our audience wants to follow what you're doing online or connect with you, what would be the best way for them to do that? Well, the, you, they can reach me through erichippelspeaks.com. Uh, they can leave contact information or email or just make a message and I'll get back with them. That's probably the best way. I mean, I, I throw out my email address, but actually my email is ehipple17 at gmail. And I, and I do communicate a lot on that. I, I get a lot of them, but I pick off what I can and respond to it if something very personal. So those are the best two ways to get a hold of me. You can always reach out to benice.org. I do some work with them as an advocate. I also a CNS, so Center for Neuro- Neurological Studies. So Center for Neurological Study.com. They're involved in the, and this is quite interesting, the brain injury, and we're doing research right now. We've had a research for veterans going on, but we have research going on right now for brain injury. And uh, we're looking at doing another step for what that means. We found out that through that study that a lot of guys who have had sustained injuries over a long period of time to their subconcussive hits, it actually um, affects the, they call it hypopituitary uh, dysfunction, basically, hypopituitarism. So it's when your pituitary gland's not functioning correctly, and so your hormones aren't being signaled to release like they're supposed to. And, and those things look just like uh, depression as well. So, so there's different areas, you know, to go, but those are some of the people I'm involved with. Excellent. And for our audience, we will make sure to include those links in the show notes down below. Eric, it's been awesome having you on the podcast today. Thank you very much. Well, I appreciate it. And um, thank you very much for having me on. And uh, I know we dived into some areas. One great one great link for information itself is the University of Michigan. So it's called depressioncenter.org. Tremendous amount of great information, depressioncenter.org. Excellent. We'll include that in our links as well. Eric, thank thanks again. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Hey, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, then subscribe to our email newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get new episode announcements, You'll get all kinds of great behind the scenes information on upcoming guests. Plus, you'll receive special offers from our guests and partners that you can only get through the email newsletter. Subscribing is quick, easy, and best of all, it is free. Just go to callofleadership.com email, type in your email address, and you're done. Once again, that's callofleadership.com email. I'll catch you in the next episode.